This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 180. Today we speak with Bill Dennison about transformationalism and Christian higher education. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey. This is episode number 180. We have another great episode lined up for you. We're going to be talking about several different things, intellectual history for the most part. Mm -hmm. Let me introduce the panel to you today. We have Jeffrey C. Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Welcome back, Jeff. It's great to have you. Yes, good morning, Camden. And it's a, it's a pleasure to have you in studio. We've got a couple episodes lined up today, and uh, they're going to be fun and they uh, are. exciting. We're trying to stay fun. cool here. First time we've had to use the air conditioner in the studio, but uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a warm May day. It is. still May. It is. Uh, well, and we also have, calling in from New Jersey, we have Jim Cassidy, who is the pastor at Calvary OPC in Ringo's. Welcome back, Jim. How's the weather out in Jersey? It's just as sultry and, and hot here as it is down there. Really it's not that pretty far away. nasty. Yeah, it's one of those things. And uh, proving to be quite the uh, American panel, we've got people from all over. We, uh, I want to welcome our guest, Dr. Bill Dennison, who is Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, as well as a Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Northwest Theological Seminary. Welcome back, Bill. It's great to have you. Great to be with you. Now, Bill's calling in from Pittsburgh. Uh, he's got some big news. You just had another grandchild, did you not? I did. We had our first granddaughter uh, on uh, Lord's Day afternoon. <laughs> That's a, wow. Wonderful. Last week. So, wow. Wait, wait, wait. You're not supposed she to labor my... on the Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, what is this? <laughs> so, so uh, yes, so we had our first granddaughter. We have two grandchildren, uh, sons, and uh, this was my daughter's uh, first child and her mm. husband. And uh, so they live in Pittsburgh because he's in uh, doing his me- residency at the uh, University of Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Medical Center. And wow. um, my daughter just and my daughter just finished her PhD in medieval history Amazing. at Amazing, Catholic University. It? So, uh, so this has been uh, quite the time right now for wow. them too. Fellow cardinal, I was a cardinal for a semester, and uh, <laughs> she actually <laughs> accomplished a lot more than I did there. But uh, that's that's fantastic, and congratulations, Bill. Yeah. Um, we thank you uh, for taking some time out of your busy schedule to come speak with us. Uh, but it is a joyous time for you. And uh, it's a joyous time for all of us and for our listeners, because we always love having you on the program. Uh, Today we're going to be speaking about two different articles that Bill has written. Uh, Fantastic pieces. One is uh, recent. Is it yet to be published uh, in the Westminster Journal? No, it has been published in JETS. Well, JETS, the um, one in uh, JETS. Right. Right. And, Uh, And the Journal of... Evangelical Theological Society is in the March 2011 issue. Yes, that's it. Yeah, so we have a couple articles here. We're going to be speaking about Van Til's method applied to the Christian Academy, and then another piece on Dutch Neo-Calvinism and the roots for transformation, and we're going to attempt to link them together 
and discuss some of these similar movements or uh, similarities between uh, these two pieces. But before we do that, I need to stop and pause. Uh, We haven't been doing this much lately, uh, but I want to remind our listeners and our viewers that we are listener-supported, that Christ the Center, this program here, as well as our organization, Reformed Forum, uh, depends upon the donations and support of all of our listeners and viewers. And if you are able to help, if you've enjoyed uh, this programming and you would like to see it continue, please uh, visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate and uh, give us your support. Uh, we always encourage you to pray for us, and we, we uh, very much appreciate those prayers. And we also ask that if you're able, that you would come and uh, potentially help us financially so that we can uh, continue to support all of these uh, different programs to produce them and distribute them for free. Uh, thank you so much for your support of Christ the Center and everything we do here at Reformed Forum. All right, gentlemen. Well, now I've got my I have my two board members who are present could be pleased with me. That <laughs> We're done, very happy that I've done my support, right? <laughs> Especially Jim, um, my vice president. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Bill, we got we have some great writing here to discuss, and uh, some things that people can get their hands on. The first one here is uh, an article titled "Van Til's Method Applied to the Christian Academy: Antithesis, Common Grace, and Plato's View of the Soul." Uh, I would like for you, Bill, if you could, uh, just for a moment, describe your position at Covenant and your title. You're a professor of interdisciplinary studies. I would uh, imagine that our listeners would be very much interested in hearing about your Ph.D. work and uh, the field of interdisciplinary studies so that we can lay a foundation for your particular view on um, on the Christian Academy, because I think it's a well-informed view. Could you describe interdisciplinary studies in your academic history just a little bit? Yeah, the interdisciplinary studies uh, is a program that at least uh, at Covenant College is is offered uh, for students uh, in which they can take what we call concentrations. Now, basically, those are majors, uh, various majors at the college that are offered. And when the student takes uh, three areas, they can take three areas of uh, what we call in the, within the discipline concentrations because they will not be taking enough courses for getting the major in those areas. Now, a good example of this would be something like, let's say we have we, a student has interest in uh, three different disciplines. So they, this major provides an opportunity for them to uh, put those disciplines together and in interdisciplinary studies, the key term is integration, integrating those disciplines into a kind of focus. And and so a very popular, let's say a popular mode, like for example myself, is philosophy, theology, and history. Um, I I did an interdisciplinary PhD at Michigan State University uh, while I was teaching... uh, high school in Grand Rapids, mm-hmm. and uh, my three areas uh, there at Michigan State was philosophy, theology, and history, and my specific um, focus was 19th and 20th century Germany. Uh, and then my dissertation, I did a dissertation on Rudolf Boltmann, and um, and there have and you have already discussed this mm-hmm. in other programs mm-hmm. on uh, Reform Forum, the fruits of that, of that labor. 
Um, at Covenant, uh, a student would do three disciplines that they, they choose. All the majors are permitted uh, with respect to the concentrations except computer science. And what the student usually does is takes 12 hours. The, the basic norm is 12 hours in each of those concentrations or disciplines and um, and then combines them into our major. So if you take three disciplines, 12 hours in each of those, which is mapped out by the department itself, uh, you'd have you'd have uh, 36 hours. And then a student needs to take 12 hours of interdisciplinary courses with interdisciplinary professors. There are two: myself and a gentleman by the name of Dr. Oliver Tremue. And uh, the, the students can choose courses that we offer uh, each semester as well to make up the major. So the major is basically 48 hours um, for each student. And, um, and what my specialty is for the interdisciplinary studies, um, uh, studies um, department is, is my, my, my interests are more like an integration with respect to intellectual history. So what I've been doing is I offer courses on a rotation in the fall and rotation in the spring. In the fall, I have been doing for the last number of years a course on the French Enlightenment, which is an interdisciplinary uh, look at the French Enlightenment, sort of an intellectual history view of that, and then also a course by, by the name of Darwin. And the Darwin course um, is a little bit of a misnomer because really what it is is 19th century England with a focus on utilitarian and Victorian worldviews. Darwin is used as the paradigm for the utilitarian worldview, which is very interesting. I am not in any way or try to be an expert on, on evolution. So it's not a course about Darwin's view of evolution. It's a course about extracting from the journal and the diary of the Beagle um, his, his utilitarian position uh, or worldview that comes out of that. And I would argue, my argument is that view of evolution is already basically in place, and there's some very interesting connotations of that, and uh, maybe someday we'll do a discussion on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it would be interesting. <laughs> in the spring, then, I have been doing a rotation of rhetoric and um, uh, in, the, in the European tradition and Dutch neo-Calvinism every other year. So, um, and so this last spring, I just finished the course once again on Dutch neo-Calvinism. Next spring, I am going to do something a little different for the, for the interdisciplinary majors, and I am going to do a new course um, on church and state. Oh. So, uh, so that might be interesting for yeah. the students. So, yeah. they, so we'll, we'll see what happens with that. But that's basically uh, the idea of interdisciplinary studies. You take various disciplines, and then you try to integrate them into a focus uh, uh, in terms of your own interest. Mm-hmm. So, now, of course, the, the thread that goes through all these uh, in, in your worldview and in the worldview of us and uh, many of the, our listeners is this understanding uh, that the Trinitarian God is behind 
all truth and, and is the foundation for all these things. And so as a Vantillian, uh, it is, it's very interesting to approach the subject of interdisciplinary studies because there is a common thread that moves through all the disciplines uh, in a very real and tangible way. And uh, that is very evident in your article here, Van Til's Method Applied to the Christian Academy. Um, now, you wrote inside this article that this essay is intended as an encouragement to those who may seem to be marginalized in the realm of uh, the academy because of their commitment to the historic roots and the theological and ecclesiastical identity of the institutions of which they are a part. Um, Bill, do you find it uh, common that many Christians, as they approach higher education, whether it's Christian or or not, do you do you uh, typically find people feeling marginalized in these types of environments? Um, I wouldn't say that it I, that I have found it extremely pervasive, mm-hmm. but I have the point of the article is that there are people out there, yeah, and and often when controversies exist on a college campus, and you read about those controversies. Uh, you do sort of find that in the in the in the mood or in the, in the um, direction of progress that sometimes that the institution and those who try to hold on to the principles of the institution or the institution's own ecclesiastical background they will be marginalized and I think the examples of that is is very very pervasive mm. and um, I think and I think. Uh, and what I mean by that is not is that the movement always towards being contemporary, contemporary and relevant is very strong, and then people always in that context will always feel that they are left out yeah. of the process. Yeah, and it, um, you know, not, we sort of have in one sense uh, a classic example of that even within our own tradition of of Machen and Princeton. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. You think, you, so you sort of you, you can see that, but I do uh, at times when I'm reading or talking to some educators in other places, they just really do feel that they are um, put to the side when they raise the questions about the institution itself in its tradition. Um, I can remember, you know, it was it was really funny uh, when I was teaching at the Christian school and. Grand Rapids, and I was Orthodox Presbyterian while I was teaching there, and uh, and often I was I was asked to do the presentation uh, when they had a community discussion of Christian education, what the school was about, and I've always found that odd, and um, and that was because uh, it was the school was run by the Christian Reformed Church basically, yeah. and uh, but they had. Uh, this Orthodox Presbyterian person get up and talk about what the roots of the of the Dutch Christian school um, uh, movement and what it what its identity was was given to me to present to parents and so for kind of of public uh, community uh, uh, discussions and I still remember one of my colleagues saying that the point is here is is, Bill, you sort of understand where we grew up with it, and it's just sort of we had not even really thought about why we do it anymore. And uh, where I was coming in, and I was trying to figure out, what is this all about? And, and, uh, 
and I became so committed to it in the sense that of a Christian education that I really thought strongly about its, its, yeah. its biblical basis and so forth. So it is interesting. It was, it was interesting in that sense, and um, in a lot of ways, too. But on the other hand, there was a sense that uh, because I was not progressive in terms of where the Christian Reformed Church was going, I could also have a very, uh, I sensed a constant marginalization in terms of who I was and what the historic Christian Reformed Church stood for. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring up all these uh, these issues of tradition and history, and there's such a rich tradition, especially to American universities, there's a rich Protestant and even Calvinist tradition that many people uh, fail to recall that. Do you find it important that uh, students today or professors understand the historic roots of uh, their institutions? And if so, do you find them actually doing that? I, I, I find that that is extremely important. I believe it is. And, and, and there's a lot of ways in which possibly, and this could be offered as even a criticism of myself, that I think there's something about the history um, of, in uh, the richness of the history uh, of an institution and its background and its founding fathers uh, that should be continually reviewed and assessed. But we live in an age always of the moment, and I find that constantly in my own are- arena in terms of education. It's even even funny that, you know, even those who are so strongly about history and trying to get the students to understand the tradition, we in academia throw the tradition out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and we throw it out even with respect of our institution as we're trying to talk about how much is, this is important academically for our students to learn. So, uh, you know, uh, so these these are situations in which I, I find myself uh, very, very perplexed as to why we don't savor those things. And it's not, and, and please understand, it, 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 and this is the constant kind of criticism, there isn't necessarily anything sacred about the tradition in and of itself, the, but, uh, but there always is, and I do have a sentence in, in my article in which the point always is is to go over your tradition under the review of the scriptures and the confessional statements of historic orthodoxy. Yeah, and um, and uh, and that type of thing. But I don't find I don't find students. I, I, excuse me. I don't find many professors really consciously thinking through the confessional roots of the institution mm-hmm. as they put together methodologically the the course that they're teaching in the institution itself. Bill? That sort of yeah. goes, you know, when you were talking about coming with a Vantillian perspective in exactly. terms of the courses that I mentioned before that I teach. Uh, uh, it is in, absolutely imperative, at least for me, that I go over, that I go over, that I teach the course with the epistemological self-consciousness of my union with Christ in the heavenly places, yeah, and right. and, and with the that which has been savored 
as the teaching of Scripture in the history of the Church, and, and as I bring that to bear in terms of the material that we are reviewing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the criticism that I have got over the years in terms of my own academic uh, work and from uh, colleagues and others is that, of course, is that I'm too antithetical. <laughs> and I guess I appreciate that criticism because it's the criticism that Van Till always got. <laughs> uh, Bill? And if I, if I could say it, it's, it's the criticism, too, that I find constantly when I read the pages of scriptures. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. No, Bill, a couple of, a couple of questions, Bill. One is, it sounds, it sounds like uh, you're, what you're saying, uh, I don't want to use, the, maybe the word echoes is, is inappropriate, but what you're saying coheres uh, generally with the historical work of uh, George Marsden in his book, The Soul of the American University, uh, where, where Marsden uh, chronicles the shift in uh, institutions for higher education in the United States from a, a very a specifically Christian confessional foundation, and over time they lost their moorings. Uh, is, do you see yourself building on that work, or are there areas where you yeah, differ what from I ours? Do, yeah, if, uh, for your listeners, uh, and, and I, is that I do footnote that, as you yes, know, in I the do. article. Yeah, right. several, yeah. and, uh, and, and I am building on that. And um, I don't know if um, Professor Marsden would go as far as I do in terms of these things, Um in terms of where I want to end up, uh, but nevertheless, he has definitely chronicled these things uh, and these changes, and many others have, too. I have a very lengthy footnote and basically of works that have already, that I'm basically jumping on the bandwagon, <laughs> to be honest. But nevertheless, I'm trying to put it in, a, in another connotation in which I know that, uh, in terms of Candon's question, I know that there are people out there that that teach at these institutions, and they hold dearly to the tradition of their institutions, mm-hmm. but they don't, uh, but they're sort of on the marginalized, they're not on the big committees, they don't get to be asked to come and, and work on the philosophy of education in the institution, perhaps. And uh, so they're, you know, they're, they're, they, but they ever, nevertheless, each day teach and teach with their, their consciousness of their own, um, of their own tradition. And um, I think that needs to be um, somehow addressed and uh, so that we're just not uh, flippantly moving along. Right. I, I will go this far. I will go this far. And, um, and the idea here is this. Uh, it, it was. Let me put it this way, and, it, and this might be a little bit too blunt. I sent the article that I wrote first to Christian Scholars Review. Mm. I knew when I sent it, it would be rejected. <laughs> but I wanted, I wanted, wanted that somebody affirmed. to read it. <laughs> right. You wanted it affirmed, okay. Yes, I wanted it affirmed that my that my hypothesis would be right, hmm. and the and the reviewer that wrote it back and my the reader wrote back was that basically you could see this, this, to be honest the steam coming out of him. 
<laughs> that you know this was this is not uh, this is not acceptable in terms of the academy. This type of analysis of the academy, nor uh, nor the model I was putting in place. Wow. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. Um, so, hey, so, so, it was, so I was honored that uh, Jets uh, was willing to do it. And the point, the point here too is, is that with respect to that, is here's the point I'm going to make is, is that in my judgment, the Christian Academy has basically become in these academies a secular academy. They have progressed with adopting modernity into postmodernity. Mm. So you will find, for example, in that journal, so many articles that basically have synthesized Christianity with postmodernity and even themes of modernity. So I ask myself, you know, what really, in terms of the Christian Academy, what really is Christian? in terms of its historic roots, or at least in terms of these Protestant, Protestant institutions, what is really Christian about them in terms of their reformational roots? Yeah. yeah. And, there, and, uh, that, and that is a serious, serious question. Yeah. Um, Bill, a, a question building off of that then about the doctrine of common grace, because um, you, you deal with this in the Jets article, and I'm just wondering for our listeners if you can... Uh, perhaps articulate. Um, I mean, the doctrine of common grace has has different applications and articulations within the Reformed tradition. Could you could you articulate for us um, how common grace ought to be appropriated in the academy and how it ought not to be appropriated? Mm, that's great. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. In 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 my just in my in my judgment, the way I like to present this um, is, is in this connotation. I think what Van Til does for us is provide helpful, and what I'm going to do is, what I'm going to say here is I'm going to make a, trying to make a general statement, and hopefully I can flesh this out, and you can ask me to try to flesh it out if, if, if for, for clarity uh, for your listeners. But what what is absolutely crucial, and what is in terms of this article, is when we are going to talk about common grace, we must understand that antithesis precedes common grace. That is that is absolutely imperative in terms of how I understand the scriptures. That is absolutely imperative in terms of understanding Van Til. And what I mean by that is, is simply the way I like to put it is this. Let's take the easy formula like I give in the, in, in the article. It is absolutely absurd to not to say that the non-Christian and the Christian do not agree that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Mm. Okay? Okay? If the, if the non-Christian goes to the market and takes to, and buys two apples and two oranges, he's bought four pieces of fruit, okay? And it's the same thing, okay, for both of us, okay? However, in terms of understanding those pieces of fruit, we have a whole different worldview which we come from in terms of how we perceive that. We come to it from a Christian theistic perspective of understanding what the Lord has provided. 
Van Til would say, okay, if it's a non-Christian, then he comes from a worldview that is basically controlled by chance. Okay, so there's so even though there's a common grace aspect, we look outside, we see the same bush, we see the same tree. That does, but nevertheless, in terms of the interpretation and the episteme, what we call the epistemological self-consciousness of that understanding, that tree is different from the non-Christian. Now, in terms of education, and we will start applying this in terms of our everyday life, and in, in terms of education, it means that we are always going to sift all the facts in what I would say is common grace. Uh, this has sometimes been helpful to people. Is the particular? Is the particulars? Okay, I see a tree. Okay, the particular tree. It looks the same for the non-Christian as the Christian. The house looks the same. Colors look the same when we look in the room. The room may have the same dimension. You measure the room. It is the same dimension that I measure the room. Right. There's no difference, okay? But the, diff- but the point is, is I understand that whole, my whole setting in terms of my union with Christ, I understand it in terms of, of, the, of the God of the Bible, in terms of a Christian theistic world, world of view, and where the non-Christian has rejected that. And so that's the universal concept. The antithesis always deals with the holistic understanding of one's particular position. Now, what happens in this article, to try to draw out another example, what I do in this article is, is look at Plato's view of the soul. And this is a practical example of that. Plato says that the soul is immortal. Oh, well, Christian orthodoxy says the soul <laughs> is immortal. There's your particular. But, okay, so I will ask someone, okay, will you believe now? Let me ask you this. Do you believe the soul's immortality is dependent on reincarnation and a form world? Oh, no. Oh. So I guess, you know, so in terms of the holistic position of Plato's view of the immortality of the soul, you're antithetical to that. Oh, yep. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay? So, see, so, and, so, but in reality, even though we will always start with the particular in our own empirical existence, nevertheless, we must, we must force this back to, to, uh, to the universal holistic position in which we are working out of. And in that holistic position... Plato's view of the soul in the context of the form world and in the context of reincarnation and things like that is totally antithetical to the Christian worldview, even though we both agree that the soul is immortal. Mm. Now, if I can make one more statement here, um, and as, as you want and may want to pursue this, the problem in Christian institutions is what we call in our Reformed tradition common grace, often is, is non excuse me, Christian educators will find a theory or a position in their discipline and basically say, because they agree with it, that it's a common grace insight. Let me give you a concrete example. 
in the environment that I was in in Grand Rapids, okay, and especially in the 1980s and with the book of Howard Van Til's book, The Fourth Day, and the issue and the issues there of theistic Christian uh, evolution. I was constantly, as I did not accept a position of theistic evolution, I was constantly combated with this notion that, don't you believe in common grace? <laughs> so in other words, in other words, for those who were in the science field who had accepted this, as, as who were uh, proclaimed Christians, they would tell me, you see, that Darwin's view of evolution is right and that it is a common grace insight. Why? Because they had accepted that. And so therefore, my view of antithesis against Darwin was off the wall mm. in their judgment. Mm. Mm. So um, maybe that's helpful to your li- no, listeners in terms of that as well. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, anyway, that's, if that, you want to pursue that. Mm. Yeah, that's that's glad. helpful, Bill. Um, it, just a, a follow-up then with your, you, you began with the thesis um, that the uh, antithesis precedes common grace. Um, if you could just, because I, it's such a key point, and I want Christian listeners, uh, people who are believers and love their Bible, I want them to understand how that statement is grounded in Scripture itself. Could you, because um, I think I know what you're saying here, could you articulate how the antithesis actually redemptive historically in the Bible precedes common grace. Could you flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, in light, very simply, in terms of the light of, uh, of the fall, and in terms of even uh, Satan's uh, own rebellion against God, the antithesis is quite simple in, in biblical revelation, and that's, my, that's the thesis here. The biblical revelation in light of the fall is the, is the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. That's it. That's the antithesis. And that's the whole redemptive historical theme. That's it. Yep. You know, and, and so the battle the battle is the battle is between principalities and powers. And that comes to expression in our world in which we, we either we either are on Christ's side or we're on the side of the of, of Satan. As Christ even puts it, this is a continual theme of you, there is only there's, you can only serve you can only serve either serve God or Mammon. You, you, that's the only option. Now this comes over throughout redemptive history. Of course, is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan, and into the New Testament, the age to come and the present evil age, in which I've also done a session with you, gentlemen on the issue of my book on the Paul's two-age construction. Yeah. Which, by the way, the, needs to be read by more people. I That's agree. Fantastic Absolutely. Book. So I encourage the listeners and, to pick that up. Yeah. So in terms of these two, these, this, this, this uh, antithesis is grounded in that redemptive yeah. historical battle, and that is it. And then you work out of, you work, out of your your common grace within that paradigm of biblical revelation, it is it is and it is and Jim, you're right. It, what I come keep coming back to, anytime I you know feel even tempted myself to uh, in terms of my own frailty to diverse out of that, I just can't overcome 
the biblical theme, and that biblical theme is just constant all the way through. Bill? And uh, that's the battle that's going on. And uh, and I wish, you know, and, and the point is, is how to, how can Christians better, better try to uh, grasp that continual, that that continual issue. And that's, that's an issue right now that some of us in our own circles are fighting, because right now, you know, the antithesis, even within uh, some of the circles that we are prominent in, the antithesis now is being defined by the kingdom of God and a civil sphere of government. And that is my argument against that. That is not the two kingdoms of the Scriptures. The two kingdoms of the Scriptures is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. That's the battle. It's not an issue of the kingdom of God and the civil kingdom or the civil government. And so so that is absolutely imperative that people start reflecting on some of the current discussion, and people are constantly telling me, that this is the antithesis. It is not the antithesis of biblical revelation. The antithesis of biblical revelation is grounded in Genesis 3.15. That is where it is. Yeah. Bill, uh, yeah. what, what I, you know that I, when I read your article, I was uh, thrilled with it because I called you and we talked for a good long time on the <laughs> phone. You remember that. Why didn't you and, turn the recorder on, Jeff? Oh, I know we, we, we should have. Stuff. We should have. Uh, but uh, why I appreciated it because it was such a helpful, you know, especially with regard to the uh, the uh, assessment of Plato's doctrine of the soul yeah. and how, uh, and so I found that a very helpful practice. And, and people, listeners, you need to, to to get a hold of this article and read it because if you want to see Van Til's approach at work. At its best, yeah, that's I thing. think, is you need to read this because it'll help you then to to, to do this assessment uh, on your own in other areas. Now, what the question I had, Bill, was uh, very often uh, Saint Augustine, of course, is appealed to. Uh, you, as you know yourself, what you've just said about the two kingdoms uh, of God and of Satan is a reflective, of course, of Saint Augustine's book, The City of God. Uh, but he also argues, of course, that, that it's the obligation of the Christian to plunder the Egyptians, right? To go after yeah. uh, truth and, um, and to get it wherever it can be found. Uh, however, and I think this is the issue that you're getting at in, in your article, it's the plundering, the, it, there, there's something that's disconnecting, that, that's going wrong when we, as we plunder the Egyptians, right? Is that we're not taking into consideration the, the the context, the original context and unbelieving context in which these truths that we find truths in quote that we find out in the in the world. Can you help us? Uh, I mean, you've been you've been going in this direction already, but can you help us with uh, uh, kind of lining out a, a way for the Christian to, if they discover? some element of truth in an otherwise unbelieving system of thought or behavior and how they go about untwisting the truth. And Scott Oliphant, in his book, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, uh, yeah. talks about... You can get for $5 That's now. right. WTSbooks.com. Uh, he talks about twisted truth. 
And so it's our job as Christians when we find the twisted truth to untwist it. Can you can you go into some detail? Because you do that in the article, but for our listeners, can you help us with yeah. uh, discussing the untwisting of twisted truth? <laughs> wow. Yeah, <laughs> that was a, a perhaps, and you tell me if, uh, if I'm not hitting hitting here where you you're you're thinking of going but um my my point would be it would be this as you uncover a truth so for example plato says in the phaedo the soul is immortal okay what my obligation there therefore at that point is before what I want to make sure I understand is how does this position that the soul is immortal, how does this fit in a person's system of thought? That's what I do. Now, as Van Til used to teach us, and in the Kuyperian tradition, and I also sat, sat under Knudsen and when he was bringing this on. What you start doing is you start unpacking what we call the structures of a person's thought. Okay, the soul is immortal. How is it immortal in this person's thought? Oh, okay. He's got this system in which the soul, okay, dies, okay, and, excuse me, the soul, excuse me, doesn't die, the person dies, the body dies, the soul moves into this realm, into this kind of realm in terms of the form world, and it waits for its time to come back into another body. And then it's so, it, oh, so there's a process, there's a cycle here that is, that in terms of his position, that the soul is reincarnated. Yes. Well, now I start putting that together with my own biblical self-consciousness of what the Bible teaches about the soul, and I realize that that's antithetical to that. Yeah. So if I'm sitting, if I'm sitting down, you know, and obviously, as we know, you see, say, for example, the physicist, the Bible never talks about atoms. What Van Til says is that the Bible, even though it doesn't talk directly about everything, it speaks indirectly about everything. And so you have to put, even as your discipline, whatever your discipline is, or whatever aspect that you're dealing with, whatever you're taking into consideration, okay, then you must put it into that person's whole system of thought. Okay, and then in that whole system of thought, you'll see that that system is, in, in its wholeness, antithetical to the Christian system. Mm -hmm. And so, so yes, you know, even Calvin admits, uh, in a footnote I have in there, that Plato's view of the immortality of the soul is better than even some Christians that he's read. <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. So, you know, so it, that's possible, that's conceivable, you see, uh, that, uh, that somebody might be even closer to, to uh, what the Scripture says in a position, but at the same time, in the final analysis, Calvin discounts Plato's system and wants everybody to be very, very careful 
even in terms of those who are being educated in his day, dealing with him, and even what we like, to, what I like to say is baptizing Plato into some type of Christian yeah. worldview. Right. Well, that, okay? that, that brings... You see, that happens. That happens in terms of the issue of Neoplatonism, you see. Augustine himself had to be sort of, uh, that had to be extracted, and there's right. different scholarly opinions on how that occurred and whether that completely occurred out of him. Right. Um, Bill, that, that, no, that's okay. That, that reminds me of another thing I've come across a lot, which is maybe it's the inverse um, effect that you're seeing, but um, there are some supposed Christians who, who see a commonality, let's say, between um, Greek philosophical thought and then historic Orthodox Christianity, for instance, immortality of the soul, um, or a substance view of God where, you know, he, is, he has an essence, right? Um, and what they proceed to do then is, is, is to reject those Orthodox Christian views, saying, well, those are just influences of Greek philosophy, and uh, therefore we ought to reject them completely. Um, and so they reject the doctrine of the immortality of the soul as it's been articulated in Orthodoxy. Have you seen this phenomenon as well, and how does that perhaps oh, yeah. tie in with some of the issues you're dealing yeah. with? Yeah, exactly, exactly. This this arises uh, quite a bit uh, in our circles, too, because in as, as time goes on and some people are trying to move towards a more modern or postmodern position uh, in terms of their own Christian formulations, it's extremely popular then to talk of the traditional historic orthodoxy as being as being concepts that are being formulated through the influence of Hellenism, Greek, or whatever the thought it is, and that is that has even been popular among the liberals. So that, for example, and as you may know, and even in terms of New Testament scholarship. You know, oh, Paul's view of body and soul is influenced by Hellenism, uh, you see. So then we can discount it, and here's how we get to it. And so in, and so at the beginning, in the middle of the 20th century, that was enabling uh, some of the more existential Christians, so to, so to speak, speak of a more, of a more, what they thought, um, uh, existential understanding of soul and body, as opposed to being corruption of, of what Paul had uh, formulated uh, and been influenced by in terms of Scripture. And that goes across the board, whether we're talking about those scholars who, who think, you know, uh, the New Testament is more influenced by Gnosticism or whatever, right. so that they can somehow, so that they can somehow themselves justify their own biblical criticism, and say, you see, these this isn't pure revelation at all, or whatever, or ever, whatever their motive is in terms of disqualifying biblical revelation as they read it, and and then trying to say, then then as Machen would say, in a sense, uh, taking a liberty with his statement, then they create their own religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their own version of Christianity for us. And that's a matter of fact, that's exactly what is happening, in my judgment, in this whole movement of, of transformation of culture. Yeah. You know, this is, a, this, is a, this is a new version of Christianity post-Enlightenment that is based on the Enlightenment. 
and it is becoming orthodox. It is becoming orthodox. Mm. And, uh, and I know this in terms of my own interaction with this. You don't believe in transformation of culture, and you will be ostracized mm. in the Christian community. You will be. Now, that is, that is where you, you, must, you must have a view of culture and culture relevancy, or else you are out, and there's a, there is huge questions raised about your, your orthodoxy or your relevancy right. as a Christian for the age in which we live. Now, one of the things that uh, many people are going to immediately think of when you talk about cultural transformation and relevancy is the Dutch neo-Calvinist movement. Um, I don't want to draw a straight line between the two, but certainly there's a relation. Now, you have this other article from the Jets 99, June 99 issue called Dutch Neo-Calvinism and the Roots for Transformation, an introductory essay. So uh, we're not going to have enough time to discuss all of this article, but I would encourage our listeners who would like to look further into it to uh, look this article up, and it is available online uh, so you can read this. But Bill, if, if in our remaining time, if you could just uh, describe a little bit, we'll start. Uh, let me ask you, wh- why was the Dutch neo-Calvinist movement established, and what was it exactly? Yeah, it, and this is interesting in itself right now with some of the discussion that is going on out there. The Dutch neo-Calvinist movement was a movement that was associated Matter of fact, the label neo-Calvinism, according to Al Walters, was given to the given to Kuiper and his followers in the 19th century by his critics. Interestingly, it, but Kuiper himself accepted it. Uh-huh. Now, uh, now the movement basically was identified the term neo-Calvinism was basically identified with, with Kuiper in terms of his cultural Calvinism. That is imperative to know, because I have even seen a number of articles and a number of other things now current discussing the idea that the theological paradigm, like, for example, the sacred theology, or now the translated reform, uh, the Reformed uh, dogmatics of Bavink, that is neo-Calvinist theology. Well, you've got to be very careful, because now, in terms of, again, historically understanding that term, the term was came about in the context, again, of his opponents with respect to a cultural effect or a cultural uh, uh, promise primacy concerning of its Calvinistic worldview, mm. not the theological paradigms of the 19th century, you see, or the typical kind of what we would say, Reformed dogmatics, or systematic theology, or his Encyclopedia of Theology. Yeah. The interest was what Kuiper was trying to do in the relationship to culture in the 19th century in response to the Enlightenment in the Netherlands. And that is important, and that had to deal had to deal with cultural restoration, cultural reformation, cultural transformation. There are terminologies that were used to try to bring 
as they understood that the Enlightenment had attacked the very foundation of the Judeo-Christian tradition in Europe. Mm. And Kuiper and people and his and his predecessor and mentor, Brun von Prinster, were trying to make sure, make sure that they did not lose their position in terms of the culture of Europe in which the Enlightenment was attacking. A lot of people do not know this, and that is, for example, when the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment themselves started talking about the norms of natural law with respect to the various institutions in culture. Why did they go to that? Why does natural law become the underlining theme in terms of, of, of the uh, Enlightenment with respect to the various institutions? Because, you see, they're rejecting the idea that God himself is the creator, so they believe that there's something inherently in the law, in nature itself that teaches us how to educate our children, how to understand biology, how to do economics, Adam Smith. You see, the, these are theories that come into position and in which, in the final analysis, are trying to secularize the West, how we understand history without God, David Hume, history history of England. You see, uh, all of these things become very, very important, so institutions or even perspectives in disciplines have their own norms and laws provided by nature and reason itself. Therefore, you see, what happens is that in the 19th century, I like to put it very simply, in the 19th century, what Kite with Van Prinster and 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 Kuiper said is, no, you're not going to get the creation enlightenment. Not you guys. Without God, we're going to we are going to get the creation itself. And so there is this movement to restore in Christian thought a high position of God's intervention, God's sustaining. God is the creator, and that the re- and to put it quite simply, the creation and nature belongs to God. It does not belong to the kind of infinite process of evolution without God himself. And so when the neo-Calvinists of the 19th century started, then what follows with this is a view of culture. They're not going to let the children of the Enlightenment have the culture. They're not going to let them have nature. And so what it did is start a theology that was riveted to creation and nature, consummated in Bobbing's famous phrase, grace restores nature, and which I believe is, is a paradigm that becomes accented in the 20th century in Dutch neo-Calvinism to the point that creation and nature is almost worshipped. Mm. Bill, that's fascinating. Of course, your article, um, we're out of time today or this morning uh, for various reasons, uh, but uh, your article, of course, deals with continuity uh, between the new heavens and new earth and this present 
age and uh, and and you discuss many different figures, in, um, including Kuiper and Bovink, Doyavir, Volenhoven, Walter Storff, and then you already mentioned Al Walters, a present day figure. So uh, we'll put a link to this article in the um, in the show notes, and uh, perhaps we can revisit this later. Mm. Uh, perhaps our listeners can send us some questions. I had received a few on Twitter. Uh, but we're not able to address them today. So um, we'll leave it at that, and uh, we'll table this discussion. But I do want to thank you so much for an enlightening discussion, no, no, uh, no pun intended. Uh, but, but, Bill, it's always, it's always fascinating to have you on, and we very much appreciate you uh, stopping by uh, over the telephone and, uh, and taking the time out of your day to share uh, much of your insights with, with our listeners and with us as well. So thank you, Bill. We appreciate it. All right. I appreciate it very much, and thank you for the time. Yeah. Let me uh, let me point uh, people a few different directions. Uh, you can visit uh, Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey at calvary-amwell.org. Uh, they have a bunch of sermons there, a bunch of information about their church and ministries. Uh, you can visit us online at reformedforum.org, where we have all of our programs uh uh, information about everything that we do uh, and links for you to download all sorts of resources. And of course, we broadcast live at reformedforum.tv and we have a calendar there where you can keep up to date with when we will be broadcasting and you can follow us al- along online. And uh, since I did mention Twitter, I'll, I'll mention uh, a few of the places you can find us on Twitter at Reformed Forum. You'll find Jeff at RevJW, that's Reverend Jeff Waddington. Uh, Jim Cassidy is JJ Cassidy, and I'm at Camden Busey on Twitter. So if you want to get a hold of us, that's a good way to do it. Uh, tweet us uh, your questions, your comments, and uh, we'll interact with you. We'd be happy to do so. We want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>